0: Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into this sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. Hi, I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week we will be answering questions about the opening chapters of Genesis as well as listener questions we were unable to cover in previous weeks. Why do so many Christians view the opening chapters of Genesis as non-literal, and why is that such a big deal?
1: I think part of the reason that so many Christians today uh, read the opening chapters of Genesis as mythical or as non-literal is partly because the events that transpire in the opening chapters of Genesis seem so fantastic— You've got the creation of the world out of nothing by the Word of God. You've got this man and the woman living in this garden where these these two trees and there's talking serpents and then later there's a destruction of the world in a flood and yet this family is in this ark that's delivered, that's floating on top of the water. It just seems crazy and fantastical and mythical. Um, and then you have a lot of Christian commentators and authors who, when they write about the book of Genesis, they treat it as though it is a non-literal description of events, as though it is kind of a Christian creation or origin myth, that the primeval history that is described in Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 is not to be taken at face value, but is just to give us some kind of spiritual sense of the fact that God is the creator and that sin entered into the world, but not giving us the literal descriptions of how these things happen. and partly I think the reason why there is such a uh, emphasis on trying to mythologize the opening chapters of the Book of Genesis is the serpent's line that we get all the way back in chapter three: "Has God really said?" And then from there forward, undermining to Eve the content of what God said to her uh, and, and commanded to them about not participating in eating of the tree. That deception has continued in Satan's ongoing attempt to discredit God's word. And so, if we look at the content of what's there in the opening chapters of Genesis, there's some very significant bedrock, or as we might say in this foundation series, foundational principles of the Christian faith that inform our understanding of who God is, why as creator he has the right to rule over his creation and declare what is right and what is wrong his prescription for humanity, what we were created for, for marriage, for sexuality, the origin of evil in the world. All those things are, are introduced in the opening chapters of Genesis. So when I step back and consider why is there such a push to mythologize or to deliteralize the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, I think it's because so many Christians are becoming susceptible To the lies that Satan would have us to believe that undermine God's word and that consequently undermine some critical doctrines and critical principles of humanity and what we know to be true about the world that are laid in the opening chapters of Genesis. My contention is that if we don't understand the opening chapters of Genesis well, we're going to have a very hard time taking seriously the rest of the Bible that builds off of these foundational truths.
0: Did God create evil? And if not, where did it come from?
1: C.S. Lewis talks about uh, this a little bit in his book, Mere Christianity. And I think he helpfully conceptualizes for us the idea of evil in the same way that we might think about the difference between light and darkness. And that darkness, properly speaking, is not a thing in and of itself, it's the absence of light. Evil, in a similar sense, is not a thing in and of itself as much as it is the rejection of goodness and the pursuit of what is other than God. And so, as we conceptualize that, it helps us to understand that evil is not this created thing that God is therefore responsible for creating and introducing into creation. Rather, God is good. He creates everything that there is, and because it is from Him, it is also good. But then, these creatures who he has created because he gave them a will and opportunity to make choices also have the opportunity to reject God. And in the rejection of God, they, they choose to pursue that which is not good. And the opposite of the good is evil. And that is really to understand evil as not its own entity, but as a rejection of all that is good, which is another way of saying a rejection of God himself. And so evil is, properly speaking, not something that has properties in and of itself. It is a rebellion against what is good and therefore what is godly.
0: So it's not something that God created.
1: Correct. And therefore, he doesn't bear responsibility for being the author of evil, as some have uh, endeavored to, to cast him as. Instead, we see that from Satan onward, our embracing of evil is our worship of ourselves rather than the creator we were designed to worship and glorify.
0: Did Eve sin before she ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil?
1: You know, it's really hard to parse that sequence exactly. Certainly, we read this development in her thinking process at the tree. She looks and she sees that the fruit of the tree is good and that it's desirable to make one wise. And then she reaches out and she takes and she eats of it. And so the question I think that the is being asked here is, does she sin as a result of desiring the fruit or is she only sinning after she eats the fruit? And the Bible doesn't, again, parse that for us Exactly. I think what we see is that she is tempted uh, by the serpent. She then begins to believe some of his lies and consequently disbelieve um, the truths that God has told her. But that, that reorganizing of her thought process and her desire to elevate herself and to become like God is contemporaneous with the action of her reaching out and then taking of the fruit and then eating. So, I think in reality what we have is there's temptation and the way that we know that that temptation has resulted in sin in Eve's heart is by her taking and eating the fruit. That consummating act is what reveals to us that the temptation has not only been received by Eve, but that it has taken root and hold in her heart and has possessed her so that she must now possess and take the fruit. So I think it's too difficult to try to parse those out. Instead, we should say her eating the fruit helps us to see that the sin in her heart has taken hold. But the sin in the heart probably does precede the act that she takes. But we just wouldn't know that without her taking the fruit.
0: Is every baby born in the image of God from the beginning, or is that something that develops as they grow?
1: You know, we read in the Psalms that David speaks of the fact that he was knit together by God in his mother's womb. And it speaks to the fact that God knows us as persons while we are still in the wombs of our of our mothers which speaks to the fact that our humanity and our personhood is not something that comes subsequent to our birth uh, inst- or our development uh, intellectually as some would claim some ethicists would try to argue that personhood is a product of development of consciousness and all these other kinds of things but but the bible speaks of our personhood and our humanity as being something that God himself recognizes as he forms us in the wombs of our mothers. Now, as we're beginning to transition to Advent, I think an interesting correlation to this is when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and we read that at the coming in of Mary, who, of course, has in her womb uh, Jesus, um, that John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And so the person of John recognizes through somehow the Spirit's enabling in the child in Mary's womb, his Savior. And so he leaps for gladness over this one uh, that is in in Mary's womb. And I think that that speaks to the personhood of both John and Jesus while they're still in the womb of their mother. So I think the Bible is very clear that our personhood and our humanity is recognized by God from the moment of conception forward.
0: In one of your previous sermons, it sounded like Cain had a choice in rejecting God, but it is also clear that God pursued Cain. So it might not be a black and white answer, but could you speak to the issue of our choice in salvation?
1: Yeah. Wow. That's obviously a really good question, but it's also a very significant question in terms of how we think about what it means to have choice, what it means to have moral agency, but also holding those things in tension with the sovereignty of God and electing and predestining those who he is redeeming uh, for salvation. And so uh, recognizing how large this question is, and I could easily preach multiple sermons on this topic to try to address this very briefly. What we have in the garden of Eden and with Cain with, excuse me, Adam and Eve before the tree. And then what we see later with their son Cain is mankind presented with a choice, a choice of obedience that is going to result in their flourishing or a choice of disobedience of God's command that is going to result in their hardship, and suffering, in sin, and ultimately in death. Adam and Eve fail that choice, of course, at the tree. Their son, Cain, is now born with a sin nature, like we have that Adam and Eve did not originally have. So Adam and Eve, their choice in the garden is more neutral because they don't they're not warring against a sin desire in their own hearts already. Instead, they're created without that sin nature and they're in this garden, everything's perfect around them. They they have everywhere around them evidence of God's goodness. And so their choice is um is exercised with a degree of moral freedom that you and I have never experienced because we have a sin nature that inclines us already toward one side of the ledger, which is our sin. Cain has this sin nature, and yet God comes and he presents Cain with a choice when he is downcast and upset that his sacrifice has not been accepted and his brothers has. And God says to him, Do you do well to be angry? Don't you know that if you do well, your you and your sacrifice will be accepted? And so there's this choice that's there offered to Cain of you can still do the right, Cain, and, and you will still be accepted. If you don't do right, however, know that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. So there's this corresponding warning. And then we find immediately that Cain goes and he pursues his sin. So What kind of choice does Cain really have? We read in the book of Romans chapter 1 an interesting description of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, the people who rebel against God's will, all of sinful humanity that is not in Christ. This is a description of the way that we all go apart from God intervening in our lives. And there's this repeated phrase that gets used in the latter part of chapter 1 of Romans from verse 18 through verse 31 this phrase, and God gave them up. And the, what's happening there is that man has sinful desires. They're pursuing those sinful desires. They're rejecting and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And God gives them over to those desires. So I've already mentioned C.S. Lewis once in this podcast, so I'll do it again. C.S. Lewis said that one of the worst things that can happen to any person is when they stop saying to God, thy will be done, that God looks at them and eventually says, then thy will be done. And this is what God does in Romans 1. God gives humankind over to their sinful rebellion and to their sinful desires. And so while they are incapable of pursuing God apart from God by his grace, making them alive to the truth, revealing himself to them, calling them to himself, it is yet also at the same time true that they are responsible for their sinful actions because their sinful actions are in perfect correspondence with their own will to sin. We see another example of this uh, with the Pharaoh of Egypt when Moses comes and tells Pharaoh, let God's people go. And we read 10 times in the account of the pre-Exodus there in Egypt that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Five of those 10 occurrences, Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. Five of the other ten occurrences, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, the question is, well, who's doing the hardening? And the answer is both. But the the word there for hardening is really better translated strengthened. In other words, it's not as though the desire to rebel against God wasn't already present in Pharaoh's heart, and God introduced that desire, and therefore, God is the one who's responsible for Pharaoh's rebellion. No, instead, God strengthened the resolve of Pharaoh's heart that was already there even as Pharaoh himself is strengthening that resolve to rebel against God. So whenever we think of sinful humanity, God is not responsible for their choice to choose evil because that's what they desire to do anyway. You and I desire to pursue our sin on our own. We don't need God's help to do that. He gives us over to those desires when he does not by his grace redeem us. The question then is what happens in salvation? In salvation, God, through His Spirit, transforms our sinful desires so that we are able to desire the gospel, that we are able to desire to pursue Christ, that we are able to desire to glorify God rather than ourselves. And by giving us these new desires, we again are able to make a choice because we are able to pursue these new desires that God gives us. But apart from God intervening by his sovereign grace and overwhelming our sinful desires with a new heart given to us by the Spirit so that we desire new things, none of us will ever choose anything else other than what Cain chose. So Cain's choice is genuine, but because God does not intervene to transform Cain's desires, Cain, in choosing, chooses to pursue what he always wanted all along, which was his rebellion against God, and therefore he is fully responsible for his moral choices big question, big topic. There's the, as brief of an explanation as I can give.
0: If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8am on Tuesday morning to questions at westcannon.org. We'll see you next week.